Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're a visitor, it's great to have you. Uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here. And you came at a, at a good Sunday because we're starting today a brief uh, s- summer series for about a month. The series is on hell. And you know, we waited to the warmest time of the year to do that series. Just sort of a little th- way to help you remember it. Actually, while uh, we can make jokes forever on the topic of hell, and you're going to have a lot of fun talking about how you're being preached on about hell at, at church, it's not really a, a laughing matter. Because the truth is that many people are dying and going straight to hell. I read a statistic recently. It says that in, uh, there's three people that die on average every second. That's 180 people that die every minute. 11,000 that die every hour. Over a quarter of a million, or quarter, yeah, quarter of a million that die every day. That is 95 million people at least are dying a year, and most of them are on their way to spend eternity in hell. Well, many people are heading to hell. One of the things you rarely hear talked about in our world is the very topic of hell. In fact, culturally, you almost, it's like a bad thing to talk about nowadays. The idea of eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment, the reality of hell. There was a survey that was done in 1978 about hell, and in 1978, 70% of the people believed in hell's very existence. But 11 years later, Newsweek did the exact same survey in the United States, and the number dropped that only 58% of Americans even believe in the existence of hell. That's from 70 to 58%. In England, they did that same survey, and it had dropped to 24% of the people in England even believe that hell exists. In 2003, they did a, a survey, and one of the questions on the survey was, do you think there is a chance that you may be going to hell? And less than 1% of the people in the United States who responded to that survey said they thought there was a chance that they were going to hell. So the belief in hell in, the, in our culture is on a rapid decline. I mean, think about the funerals you go to. Everybody goes to heaven, right? Nobody is ever thought of as being possibly in hell. And I have to tell you that churches have not helped this at all. When was the last time you heard a sermon on hell? When was the last time you heard a sermon series on hell? My guess is that most of us have never even heard those kind of teachings, yet it's such an important part of the Bible. Even when it comes to Christian publishing, Christian publishing recently, and well, until just recent years, has been relatively silent on the topic of hell. When the Bible Almanac came out, so as to be soup to nuts, everything you need to know in the Bible, 800 pages, had only five lines on the topic of hell in the entire book. When Eerdmans published the contemporary uh, book of theology, 396-page book, you know how many lines it had on hell? Zero. Did not even cover the topic. Now, maybe today... You're somebody who is sort of bought into the, the, our culture. You don't think about hell. 
You don't worry about hell. You don't even talk about hell. The idea that the friends and neighbors around you may be spending an eternity in hell doesn't even cross your mind. You've bought into this idea that hell is not that big of a deal. And it's something we should never concern ourselves with. In fact, maybe you think that even talking about hell like I'm doing this morning is sort of culturally unacceptable. It's like me saying I'm for slavery or talking about hell is like saying I'm for racism because it's just not the thing you do. And if that's you this morning, I want to challenge you. Challenge you to rethink you're thinking on hell. Because what we're going to do is we're going to put our finger in the text. We're simply going to let the Bible teach us about what hell is. And we're going to learn a lot. And we'll learn it's not some kind of obscure, questionable teaching that the Bible doesn't deal with. Rather, it's all over the place. And it's something we have to know about and be prepared to think about. This morning, we're going to break our study into three parts. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to give you a brief history of hell, which is sort of give us an overview, which is important. And then we're going to look briefly how the Bible describes hell. And lastly, we'll answer one of the most important questions that we often hear, which is how could a loving God send good people to hell? In upcoming weeks, we will look at different questions. We'll look at is there a way that there is getting, you can put some air conditioning in hell? Or is there a way to get a back door out of hell, which a lot of contemporary theologians are claiming there is? We'll also look at the idea of a guided tour of hell in future weeks. We'll sort of look, what does the Bible say it is like in hell? And we'll have that in a couple other topics. So we have a variety of things to cover in the next three to four weeks. So let's dive in. If you have your outlines, get them out. We have a bunch of history to give to you and a bunch of good information. So uh, we'll begin with the first point, which is a brief history of hell. Now, when you <coughs> excuse me, when you go, turn to the Bible and you take out the book of Genesis, you don't find that the doctrine of hell comes to us fully formed in that book. Rather, the doctrine of hell expands over time as you go through the Bible and you learn more and more about hell as you proceed through the Bible. And by the way, that's not unique to hell. That's unique to a lot of things. Uh, Heaven and what heaven is like does not come to us fully formed in Genesis. We learn more and more as you go through the Bible and God reveals more of himself to us. So as we look at what the Bible teaches us about hell, it's wise for us to start in the Old Testament, and then we'll work our way into the New Testament, and we'll progressively learn more about it. The best way for us to do that is simply follow the key words the Bible gives to us about life after death, and the key words the Bible gives to us to describe hell in the, um, as we, as we work our way through the scriptures. (coughs) So here's the first key word we need to know. It's called Sheol. It's afterlife in the Old Testament. Krista, can you do me a favor? Can you grab my water and bring it up here? Usually I don't drink water, but I am suffering with a cold, so I can tell it's going to be a challenge today. At least I'm not like Pastor Jordan. He has a nasty sunburn. He looks like he actually went to hell to do his research. (laughs) Sorry about that. 
Okay, as I said, uh, Sheol is the most important word to help us understand hell in the Old Testament. Uh, unfortunately, in the King James Version, when it uh, translated the Hebrew word Sheol into English, it did not translate it consistently. It did not translate it accurately. 31 times the King James translates Sheol as hell. Uh, 31 times, it, another 31 times, it translates Sheol as the grave. Two times it translates Sheol as the pit. And you need to know right off the top here that Sheol in the Old Testament is not hell. Hell is the lake of fire which comes at the end of history after everyone has faced final judgment by Jesus. Technically, nobody is in hell right now because nobody has yet faced final judgment in front of Jesus. Well, then the question becomes, what is Sheol? Well, Sheol in the Old Testament, there is not a lot of description given to us. The best way to describe it is, first of all, it's a place of conscious existence for those who die in the afterlife. The Bible describes Sheol, uh, that everyone would go there in the Old Testament when they died. And it describes it roughly, I'm not going to get into all the text for this, but it describes it as a place that uh, some people have different experiences there. For some, it was a place of agony. For others, it was more of a place of comfort. And there was hints in the Old Testament that in Sheol, which is the temporary place that people go when they die in the Old Testament, that there was actually almost two compartments in it, a compartment for the righteous and a compartment for the wicked. And then best of all, there is scripture in the Old Testament that tells us that the righteous who died would not stay in this temporary compartment of Sheol forever, but God would actually pay a price to be able to take them out of Sheol. In fact, let me show you where this is found. Uh, Psalm 49, 15. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. He will receive me. You can see in the Old Testament the prophecy that the righteous dead would not stay in Sheol forever. God would take them out. So in the Old Testament, when it comes to life after death and, and the idea of what happens after death, quite honestly, there is not a lot of information given. The key things you need to know are, number one, everybody continues to exist in life after death in a place called Sheol. Number two, this place could be for some a place of suffering and for others sort of a place of comfort. They would have different experiences. And number three, there is prophecy that would say that God would one day pay a price to take the righteous dead out of Sheol. Now, when the door to life after death in the Old Testament is only open to crack, when you turn to the New Testament, that door is swung wide open, and all of a sudden, all kinds of details on the afterlife are revealed to us. The next key word we need to understand is Hades. Hades is afterlife in the New Testament. Now, in the New Testament times, uh, when people spoke Greek, 
just like us, we don't know our Hebrew, so we don't read the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. And people back then, a lot of them didn't speak Hebrew, so they had a translation, a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek that they spoke that day called the Septuagint. Uh, we have a translations that we study. We have the Bible translated into English. They had their Old Testament translated into Greek called the Septuagint. And here's what you need to understand. In the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament in Greek, every single time they ran across that Hebrew word sheol, <coughs> they translated it with the Greek word Hades. So sheol in the Old Testament and the Greek word Hades, which we also find in the New Testament, is actually one and the same thing. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Just so you know, there are some English translations of the Bible that have not handled this properly. They see the Greek word Hades in the New Testament, and in English, they simply translate across the English word hell. That's not a fair translation. Hades and hell are different. Remember, Hades and Sheol are the same. They are the temporary holding place of the dead until final judgment. Nobody is in hell yet. So Hades and hell are different places. Now here's where it gets interesting. Between the closing of the Old Testament and the 400 years that took place until the coming of Christ and the beginning of the New Testament, the rabbis, as they were studying the Old Testament, their understanding of life after death in what is Sheol in the Old Testament or Hades in the New Testament, as they would say it, they had a more mature and developed understanding. And they came to the understanding that it was a place that had two compartments, which we talked about briefly before, one compartment of suffering and another part compartment of comfort. That compartment of comfort, they actually had a name for it. They called it either Abraham's bosom or they called it paradise. That's what you need to know. Now, Jesus comes along in the first century, and he tells a parable. It's Luke chapter 16. Remember the rich man and Lazarus? And what Jesus does is he tells this parable, and he reinforces what was the current rabbinic understanding of life after death. And here's where it gets interesting. If you're using the NIV... And you read that parable, it'll say, in hell where he was in torment. Bad translation. Read the Greek. It says, in Hades where he was in torment. That was a description of Hades that Jesus gave. And what do we find? One compartment was a place of torment. The other compartment was a place of comfort. And there was a great chasm between the two, separating those two. Now, we also know that in the Old Testament there was prophecy that said that one day God would pay a ransom that would take the righteous out of that compartment in Hades known as paradise. 
and you turn to the New Testament scriptures, and it seems like that is exactly what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. That he took the Old Testament saints who were in the compartment of comfort in Hades, known as paradise, and he took them home to heaven to be with him. Let me show you where you can find just a little bit of this. And I don't have time to go into all the scriptures to unpack this, but so you have to take a little bit of trust in me on this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. Then you go further into the New Testament. And what do we find? Paul says that for everyone who dies, who is a Christian, who has trusted in Christ, where do they go? Do they go to paradise and Hades? Not anymore, since Christ is risen from the dead. They go home to be with Jesus directly in heaven. Philippians chapter 1, 22 through 23. Paul says, If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It seems like the compartment of the righteous dead in the Old Testament who had trusted in God has been emptied and brought home to heaven, and we know very clearly in the Scriptures that all Christians, when they die, are with Jesus home in heaven. But what about the compartment in Hades that was a compartment of torments? As far as we can tell, that is still being populated by those who are dying without Christ, waiting until final judgment. Now let's go on to our third word. The third word we run across as we're working our way through the Scriptures is the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is a portrait of hell. It is not actual hell. It is a picture of hell of hell. Let me give you the background on this word. In 750 B BC, uh, King Ahaz was ruling, and King Ahaz was a really bad dude, really far from God. He actually took his children and burned them alive in sacrifices to foreign gods. That's a bad dude. And where did he do that? He did that just southwest of Jerusalem in a place called the Valley of Ben-Hinnon, or the Sons of Hinnon is where he did that. God eventually dethroned him. After him came Hezekiah, who was a good king. But after Hezekiah, it boomeranged right back with Manasseh, who was a bad king, just like his grandfather. And he also went back to the Valley of Ben-Hinnon. And guess what? He burned his own children in sacrifices to foreign gods. The Valley of Ben-Hinnon had a terrible reputation in Israel for those reasons. Along comes a young man named Josiah, who God raised as king, even when he was only eight years old. And when he was still a teenager, God had used him for a massive reformation in the nation. And what he did is he took that valley of Ben-Hinnon, and because it was such a repulsive place with such a bad reputation, he turned it into a garbage dump for the city. This was not an ordinary garbage dump. This was a disgusting garbage dump. It was the place that they threw animal remains. It was the place they threw dead animal bodies. It was a place they even threw human 
bodies. When you went to the valley of Ben-Hinnon, it smelled of stinking, rotting human flesh in the sun. Corpses were visible. You could see fires continually burning in the garbage and worms working its way through de decaying bodies. It was repulsive and putrid. And eventually, this valley of Ben-Hinnon was sort of shorthand in the Hebrew to Gehenon. <clears throat> Jesus comes along, and he is trying to describe what is ultimate hell, the final resting place of those who have died apart from Christ. And you know how he describes it? He said it's like Gehenna. Eleven of the twelve times that Gehenna is used in the New Testament, it comes on the lips of Jesus. He says, you want to know what hell is like? Look just southwest to the garbage dump, Gehenna, where the fires are continually burning, bodies are continually rotting, and people cover their mouths because they want to hurl just by the smell. That's what hell is like. And that's where people will be forever. The reason he did that is because it's a very graphic portrayal that would connect with his audience. So it, wouldn't, it wasn't an abstract thing. It was a very real thing for them. The last bit of terminology we need is to get to hell proper. Hell itself, which is known as the lake of fire. This is the final resting place of those who have died apart from Christ after they have faced final judgment, they've been taken out of Hades, they've been judged by Christ, and they are condemned to the lake of fire, which is hell proper. And there they will be for the rest of history. Now, the lake of fire is something that is talked about with Jesus, describes it. Paul describes it. The apostle John describes it. It's the common description of what hell is like. In fact, uh, the Bible tells us who will be in the lake of fire. I have this on the bottom of your outline here. If anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he will be thrown into the lake of fire. Anyone's name who is not in the book of life will be in the lake of fire. That brings us to the next part uh, of, our, uh, of our study. How does the Bible describe hell? How does the Bible describe this lake of fire? We're going to keep our finger heavy in the text at this point. Let the text do its talking. The first thing we see is that hell is a place of punishment. Jesus describes the lake of fire in the parable of the sheep and the goats. Then he will say to those in his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will, say, they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will say to them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
Now, I want to point out to you in this parable, people's eternal destinies is first and foremost based upon their relationship with Jesus. But the reality of that relationship with Jesus is seen in the way they treat other people, especially those in need. Because God's people went out of their way to help others in need. Now notice the lake of fire. It was originally prepared as the just eternal resting place for the devil and his angels. But those who have joined in the devil's rebellion, whether that be fallen angels or human beings, it becomes the just eternal resting place for them as well. In fact, it's called what? It's called punishment. It's the just response for sin. That's how the Bible describes hell. Why I'm in this verse section, I want to also point out to you it's described as eternal. Notice it says here at the end, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Some people will say that the punishments of hell are not eternal. But if the punishments for hell are not eternal, that would mean the life we have as Christians would also not be eternal because it is the same word for eternal used in both descriptions. It's hard to weasel your way out of that one. The next verse I want to look at comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, 6-9. through 9. Since indeed God considers it just to replay, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and the Thessalonians are enduring suffering. They're enduring suffering for their faith. And he says, guys, keep the big picture here. You know this unjust suffering will not go on forever. One day, Jesus Christ will return with his mighty angels. One day, he will make things just. Nobody will get away with anything. It says, and he will inflict vengeance. That is, punishment on those who are afflicting you. But notice he says here, he's not just going to inflict vengeance on those who are afflicting you. And he's not just going to inflict vengeance on the mass murderers who are out there. He is going to inflict vengeance upon everyone who does not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. That there is only one way out of eternity in hell. And that is Jesus Christ. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me just pause for a moment because I told you earlier that Sheol, which is also called Hades in the New Testament, was the temporary resting place of the dead until final judgment. You can see that very clearly here because Hades is ultimately People are taken out of Hades and judged, and Hades itself is thrown into the lake of fire. So you can see the separation between those two here. And this is a very good description of hell. In hell, the beast and the false prophet are tormented day and night forever and ever. And before going to hell, everyone faces final judgment before Jesus. There are two books that are opened. One is the book of life. Those who have trusted in Christ have eternal life because their name has been written in the book. The other book is the book that records all of the deeds of our life. I know some of you wished you had your own personal YouTube channel. You do. It's in heaven. It's this book. God is recording every single thing about us. So at final judgment, he can judge everyone perfectly. He can judge everyone completely fairly. And those who not are not, do not have their name in the book of life will be judged based upon what they have done in this life. The good news is, folks, Nobody gets away with anything unless your sins have been forgiven by Jesus and your name is in the book of life. You will be judged perfectly, fairly, and completely by Jesus and ultimately sent to hell where we will suffer a just punishment for our sins. Interestingly, it says that uh, Hades gave up the dead and death gave up the dead. Now you wonder, what does that mean? I don't get that. Well, we know Hades is where people go when their bodies die. Their spirits continue to exist. At least in the, there's the one compartment that's still occupied. But then it says death gave up. Well, what's going on here? Uh, it seems like what happens is everyone gets their bodies back. And everyone gets an indestructible body. And then people get their indestructible bodies back, and if their name is not in the book of life, they go with that indestructible body into the lake of fire where their body is never destroyed. That's how you can burn and never end. That's what the Scripture says. Let's continue to look. Hell is described as eternal. 
Now, incidentally, as in the previous verses, we've seen a number of hints that hell is eternal there, and let's continue to tease that out a little bit. Let's go over to Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame, it says, and everlasting contempt. Interestingly, the same, the same word for eternal is used in both of these, eternal life and eternal shame and everlasting contempt. Both the same word. So if you have eternal life, you have eternal shame and everlasting contempt. Let's go to Mark chapter 9. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to be with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let me just pull this little descriptor, where the worm does not die and the fire does, is not quenched out. The idea is that the flames of hell never get turned down. They never die. There is no relief forever and forever. Now, I know right now in your hearts, some of you are saying, this just can't be true. Folks, if you can trust Jesus to save your soul, you can trust what he says is true about hell. We find it revulsion, revulsive. But if I have to trust him in one area to save my soul, I will trust him what he says about hell. Matthew 25, we did this with the parable of the sheep and the goats. We saw this earlier. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the, what? Eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Revelation 14, 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up, what? Forever and ever. And they will have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. No rest day or night forever and ever. There's another interesting one, Jude chapter 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And I read that and I'm like, okay, wait a minute here, I don't get this. How could Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of undergoing the punishment of eternal fire? They were in Genesis 19. That's well over a thousand plus years before Jude writes. We know that God rained down fire and from heaven on them, but like, wouldn't that be done by then? And here's what I have found is some interesting historical research. The cities of the valley in that area, it's continuing, at least at the time of Jude was writing, it's continuing to undergo volcanic activity with molten lava bubbling to the surface and smoke coming out of the ground. So when Jude looks at Sodom and Gomorrah, he says that's a perfect example of what 
hell, the ultimate final resting place of those apart from Christ, is like. Because well over a thousand years after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, they are still burning. You getting the idea of the eternality of hell here? It's all over the place. Hell is also described as indescribable pain. And to describe the pain of hell, the, the Bible uses word pictures to, to be able to help us comprehend that. Let's look at Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth is supposed to describe sort of how they're responding to the fires of hell. And I thought, weeping, that doesn't sound too bad. It sounds like you crying because you lost your foot favorite football game. Sounds like sobbing. And then I did a little bit of research in the original language. It could mean that, but most likely it means wailing. Somebody undergoing complete agony and pain. Have you ever heard somebody scream in complete pain? That is what this word is describing. Gnashing of teeth. It's the idea of somebody being in so much pain they grind and break their own teeth. Now, I assume most of us have not been in that kind of pain. I was a little close to it. At least it felt that way one time. I was in college, and we went down to the New Jersey shore with some of my college buddies. There was a, an old wooden deck on the beach house we were at, and I took my shoes off, and just sort of, I, shuff, I shuffled my feet, and I shuffled my feet like this, and I, some of you can know exactly what happened. A splinter went into my foot, but not a splinter. It went way deep into my foot and broke off the piece of wood. And I was the college wrestler, so I figured, oh, man, I can handle this. So, you know, I got my foot up and get me some alcohol, get me a kitchen knife and a pair of needle-nose pliers. We're going to get this thing out. Well, about five hours later, I'm still working on it. And I could get the end of it out, but it was deep, really deep in my foot. And the sheer agony and pain of trying to dig around in my foot. They had me biting the washcloth, you know that one? As my friends are trying to do surgery on me. I, I, I could not handle anymore. I was like, guys, we're done. We are going to the doctor, the walk-in clinic. And he puts the Novocaine in. He d opens my foot up, cuts it out, and gets that big chunk of wood out. It's no big deal. And I'm like, man, Novocaine is a good thing. And I thought to myself, man, you know what? I couldn't even handle a splinter in my foot without Novocaine. Imagine hell for all of eternity without Novocaine. I was gnashing my teeth with a splinter. Imagine the pain of hell. That's the way the Bible describes this. Mark chapter 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Now, Jesus is not suggesting we cut off body parts. But what he, he's using language of exaggeration. The idea is if your hand is causing you to sin, someday in hell, when you're enduring the eternal agonies for your sin, you will say, I wish I had cut my own hand off in this life. 
than undergo pain and suffering for my sin as a just punishment in the next life. That shows you the intensity of hell and the pain of hell. Well, I've sort of whet your appetite for the last point because we've obviously looked at the eternality of hell. We've looked at the pain of hell, uh, the description of hell. Now the million-dollar question is, how can such a good God, how can such a loving God send good people to hell? How could God send people that we know that are our friends and neighbors, nice people, to this place for all of eternity? That doesn't feel right. It doesn't seem right. How could he do that? Well, let me answer that question. The first thing you need to know about this question, how could a loving God send good people to hell, is it's based on two false premises you have to take away. And once you realize that, you realize it's a terrible question. First of all, how could he send good people to hell? The Bible says, folks, that none of us are good people. We're not. Romans chapter 1, 19 through 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You notice the Bible never answers atheists. You know why? Because the Bible says atheists don't exist. The Bible says everyone knows God's existence just looking outside. His eternal power, his divine nature are clearly perceived simply by looking at the things that are made around us. Also, we innately have built into us a sense of right and a sense of wrong. We know what's wrong. We know what's right. But what do we do? We choose to do wrong anyway. Nobody has even talked to you about Jesus and you already have a guilty conscience because we are by nature sinners choosing to love our sin, to lie, cheat, and steal and rebel against God. And as you continue through the book of Romans, Paul describes what we are when it comes to our sin. In Romans chapter 3, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And Paul says, you know what? That is an apt description of you and me. Every single one of us is sinful. We are very sinful. 
Every one of us lie, cheat, and steal against God. And here is what we do not understand. We completely underestimate the power and consequences of our sin. Folks, it was one act of sin by Adam and Eve that completely separated them from God, that brought death into this entire world, that brought destruction and death into the planet itself. One act of sin. And we have committed how many acts of sin? Hundreds of thousands of acts of sin. Us and our nice neighbor. All of us are completely sinful. And one act of sin was enough to separate Adam and Eve from God. Now, some of us say, well, I know I'm sinful, but, you know, I'm not that bad. In fact, I've done some things, I've gotten away with it, and nothing's ever happened to me. Well, you know what the Scripture says? Remember final judgment before hell, where the books were opened and everyone was judged fairly? that nobody ever, ever gets away from, with anything unless Jesus has forgiven that sin? Look what the Scriptures say in Romans. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're just storing up wrath for yourself on the wrath when God's righteous judgment, when, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hell is eternal. Hell is long. Hell is just. I don't have time to get into all this today, but we'll maybe get into it later on. But just so you know, hell is not one size fits all. It is a just response to sin. So the guy who recently killed Mackenzie Lusick, that college student, and then burned her body in the backyard, his hell, apart from Christ, unless he turns to Christ, his hell will be eternal like everyone else's but it'll be even more hideous and more painful than somebody who had not sinned in that kind of a way because hell is a just response. So the first thing we learned is that we're not good people. We're sinful people. The next thing we need to know is this. God is holy and just. He is not just loving. In fact, if you want to look at this, I did some research. You talk about God's love. God's holiness. God is described as holy more times in the Bible than all of his other attributes combined. Holiness means God is completely allergic to sin. God cannot stand any sin. God must completely punish sin. In fact, I put this down into your description here in your notes. How is God described? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They don't have a way of bolding or underlining things in Hebrew, so what they do is they repeat things. God is completely holy. Folks, here's the deal. It's a bad question to say, how can a loving God send good people to hell? It's based on two false premises. The fact that we're good and the idea that we think all God is is love when he's just and holy. Here's the right question. How can a just God take sinful people like you and me 
and make a way for us to go to heaven? That is the right question, my friends. And I'll tell you the only answer to that question is Jesus. Folks, think about this. We could spend eternity suffering for our sin in hell, and it still wouldn't be enough to pay for our sin because sin is that bad. But Jesus is the only one of such great worth that he could suffer in time for our sin and completely pay for all of our sin. That's what makes Jesus so great. He's worth so much. He is the only one who can pay for our sin to take the consequences of our sin away from us. That's why we sing to him. That's why we pray to him. That is why we worship him. Folks, there is nothing you can do to solve your sin. You can spend eternity in hell for all of your sin, and that would not be enough. But Jesus can pay for it. And he did. That's why we're all about Jesus here. My second application point for you is this. When it comes to offending people, if we talk about Jesus, just get over it. I mean, when someone around you is headed for disaster, you don't worry about offending them. You worry about saving them. True? The Bible is very clear. Everyone, apart from Jesus Christ, is sinful and headed for eternity in hell. And the only way they can be saved is through the greatness of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross and simply placing our faith in him. This week, don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. Don't be afraid to talk about hell. You know the truth. Fight the cultural pressure and save people from the death of hell by telling them about Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for what you teach us in your word about hell. We want to confess that so long we have ignored the very clear teachings of your word about eternal, conscious, never-ending punishment that is a just response to sin. And as we've ignored that, we've grown cold, cold and uncaring about the people around us who are headed there. I pray today that there would be a reformation in our spirits, a change in our lives, that we would not be afraid to talk to our friends and neighbors and tell them about the incredible good news of Jesus and tell them the honest truth of what the Bible says about reality apart from Him. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.